This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. Uh, it is uh, five o'clock, there we go, exactly on the nose. Uh, it is Wednesday, December the 7th, 2022. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele is over in New York. The price action is a little bit confusing today. So equities generally a little bit lower. The FTSE 100 uh, finishing down by around four tenths of 1%. Um, we did see some of the healthcare stocks doing quite well, though, uh, on the back of a US court ruling um, that throughout. Uh, some of the science surrounding claims that Zantac, the antacid, causes cancer. Stateside, you've got the Nasdaq down by around half of 1%. The S&P is barely down. It's only down by around two-tenths of 1%. Uh, you have seen some mixed news out of China. You've got uh, a reopening story that's developing, but quite weak trade data. Uh, you have had a stronger pound today. Uh, you have had a stronger euro today. The pound is trading 121.93 against the US dollar. Uh, the euro rate is trading 105. Uh, uh, 04. Um, so in terms of single stocks that will be moving today, uh, you have seen some of the healthcare stocks uh, trading off, uh, sorry, tr- uh, trading uh, quite strongly today. GSK, Sanofi, uh, two of the uh, the names that have done quite well out of this Antec ruling. Uh, you've also had uh, Airbus under a little bit of pressure. It's not going to make its year-end delivery targets. Um, and you've also had a company called Moonpig, which we're very familiar over here uh, in the UK with. It, it delivers gifts and cards to people. Uh, I think it's somehow based out of Guernsey uh, in the Channel Islands. Um, Can you break that down for me? So I want to get you a card so they do it for me? You go online. Yeah. And you basically fill out the card. You you pick your card. You sort of fill out what you want on the inside of the card. And they then deliver the card. So you don't ever end up touching the card. It just delivers. uh, It it gets delivered to the person whose birthday or anniversary or whatever it is. And then you can have with that... You can have a bottle of champagne with that, or you can have a bottle of Prosecco with that. And apparently people are trading down from the champagne option to the Prosecco option. But Alex Steele is quite comfortable with this. She likes her fizzy drinks to be a little sweeter, I do. I do. Not like super sweet, just a little hint of it. I'm not alone. I definitely got some uh, emails on the Bloomberg saying that they also supported Prosecco over champagne. Champagne just a little bit drier. Also, girls, if you're counting the calories, it's a Prosecco thing, not a champagne thing. Champagne has like triple the amount of calories. Really? I thought champagne was like kind of zero calories. Uh-huh. and it's you, kind of You can have a flute of Prosecco. Thing. A flute of Prosecco for like 87 calories. A flute of champagne can be near 200. I'm really curious as to why the difference is because fundamentally it's the same thing. That I cannot tell you. It might be a sugar content maybe? I don't know. We, we need people who are they smarter are both than me. Sparkly, they're both white sparkling wines that emanate from different parts of Europe. I, I'm, I, I'm genuinely surprised that the calorie difference is, is that in all. I'm going to now Google this. There are other search engines available to find this out. But but Sam Fazelli was very unimpressed. I'm just going to point that out a little he bit was. earlier he on. Was. Sam Fazelli, A, our, our COVID expert, our pharmaceutical expert, uh, but also one of our resident wine experts. Um, very unimpressed with Alex's behavior. It's true. And, 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 I, and, I, and, I, and I can't really blame him to some extent on that. I, I realize that I'm doing a bad thing. 
Yeah, I'm sure Charlie Pellet is a champagne kind of person. He joins us now with Are you all the beer headlines. person. Uh, beer, champagne. I'm not picky. If he's there's somebody picky. walking around picky. handing it out, I'm in a pub and Guy Johnson's buying. I'm there. Whatever it is. <laughs> Prosecco it is. It, Prosecco it is, mate. <laughs> not an issue there. Lots going on today. First of all, economists are warning the UK government is fighting a losing battle with unions over public sector pay that will only extend strikes and delay wage inflation because the bargaining position of workers is too strong. Charles Goodhart, a former Bank of England policymaker and professor now at the London School of Economics, says politicians will condemn the UK not just to a, quote, winter of discontent reminiscent of the 70s, but a year of discontent unless they agree on a wage deal to end the ongoing industrial action. Prime Minister Sunak, meanwhile, is seeking to reassure Britons over an unusual rise in strep A infections, saying there's no reason to believe the strain had become more lethal or more resistant to antibiotics. In Parliament today, he insisted the UK is not facing a shortage of antibiotics amid reports of supply issues. Halifax says house prices in the UK fell at the sharpest pace in 14 years in November after surging interest rates reduced the affordability of properties. The mortgage lender said prices fell 2.3 percent, the third consecutive decline. A typical property in the UK now costs £285,000. That is the lowest since March. And that is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. I'm just going to say, while Charlie's been speaking, I have been um, looking online to see kind of the Prosecco champagne thing calorie-wise. I'm looking at a number of sources that seem to suggest they are basically exactly the same, which would seem logical in as much as they are both sparkling wines from different parts of Europe. But Alex Steele assures me that there is a massive difference. Uh, I mean, at least the app that I use... I have an app. I mean, I don't really do this anymore because I don't really drink anymore after a long COVID. But um, I was a huge Prosecco drinker. And I and I definitely would have this app. And I was trying to, like, lose some of the weight okay. that I gained over the pandemic. And you put it in, you like, one flute and I'm, versus one flute of champagne. They're different. Cabernet Sauvignon, I, th- this is this is caloriesinfo.info. It's one of the websites <laughs> that I've been looking at. I'm not saying that this is the right one. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, one glass, 91 calories. Carver, Spain. Let's, let's assume that the Carver and the Prosecco are basically the same thing. 90 calories. Champagne, 90 calories. Hmm. I think you may need to revisit that app. Or maybe check other sources. I'm still reading. Um, interesting. We are here. No, this points uh, out a, a good point. We're yeah. talking about this because there's literally nothing else to talk about. Well, no, there, there is also, I think, a useful public service um, discussion going on here because it, Christmas is coming. I'm sure that many people <laughs> who are listening to this program are about to potentially head out. I appreciate it's Wednesday, not a Thursday, but people potentially, I, Wednesday is the new Thursday. So I think I think we are actually providing uh, a useful service. But, but, but let us, uh, as you say, maybe sort of move on to more serious matters. Um, the US and the, uh, and, and the Europeans... Very much, Alex, on the same page when it comes to the issue of what needs to be done vis-a-vis Ukraine. The support that Ukraine mm-hmm. needs, the financial support that Ukraine needs, the weapons that Ukraine needs. Um, the issue is now that we are starting to see potential trade spats maybe undermining that security cooperation. Um, we saw a meeting earlier on this week between the US uh, and the Europeans. I think it was over in, in Maryland. At which we've been discussing the new Inflation Reduction Act, which the Europeans are getting very upset about because there's a huge sort of Buy America uh, kind of element to this. Uh, and the concern now is 
whether or not we are going to be seeing a a trade war erupt between Europe and the United States and whether or not that could undermine the credibility or, or, or the, the sort of the, the stance that Europe and the United States and the unity that we're seeing between the United States uh, and, uh, when it comes to Ukraine. Now, you and I caught up a little earlier on uh, alongside Maria today with Valdis Dombrowski. He is, uh, a vi- he is the vice president over at the European Commission. Trade is his area uh, as well to get his take. This is what he had to say. On Monday, we had uh, discussions in a framework of EU-US Trade and Technology uh, Council. Obviously, we were discussing how we are developing further our cooperation in those areas, but we were discussing also the Inflation Reduction Act and how to address the EU uh, concerns. Uh, it must be said there are some uh, openings on the U.S. Uh, side. Also, President Biden has been uh, very uh, clear that the aim of Inflation uh, Reduction Act was not to exclude uh, allies like European Union. So we are now uh, looking how uh, to practically solve the concerns uh, we are having on uh, this, for example, in the area of uh, electrical vehicles, uh, sourcing of uh, raw materials, uh, critical uh, minerals. Uh, so uh, we got some uh, reassurances, so one can say we left the United States uh, somewhat uh, more optimistic than we uh, were entering uh, the meeting of Trade and Technology Council, but it's uh, clear that we now need to move towards uh, concrete results, because number of provisions of Inflation Reduction Act will enter into force as of January 1st next year, uh, so we would expect results still this year. But that's a change in tone, because I remember when I spoke to you two weeks ago, you said we are very concerned. Now you say I'm more optimistic. So the question, of course, the markets want to know or would want to know is, does it mean that the trade war, potential trade war, has been averted? Well, uh, uh, we had been uh, quite uh, clear and quite uh, vocal about the number of uh, concerns we are having uh, related to discriminatory provisions in Inflation Reduction Act. So we had this uh, opportunity uh, to discuss this with our U.S. counterparts in a uh, framework of Trade and Technology Council. So what I'm saying is that in those discussions we saw some openings and possibilities to address uh, at least uh, part of the EU uh, concerns. So we are now waiting for the uh, uh, further work of the high-level task force, which was established, EU-US task force, to deal with this issue. And as I said, we are uh, expecting results still this year. And yeah. then we take stock where we are, to which extent our concerns are addressed, and uh, how, how to proceed further. Why didn't you tackle this issue earlier? The Inflation Reduction Act is now law in the United States. It is much more difficult to tweak and change it at this point now that it's on the books. Were you late in recognising the risk that it represented? Why didn't you tackle it when President Biden first announced it? Why didn't you tackle it when it was going through Congress? Well, uh, actually, uh, already we were raising uh, concerns uh, on some uh, provisions in Build Back uh, Better Act. So, in a sense, uh, uh, our concerns were well known uh, to the U.S. Uh, side uh, already uh, for uh, quite, uh, quite some time, and we had been in constant engagement with U.S. at uh, many uh, different uh, levels. It must be said that the inflation reduction itself, uh, as a piece of legislation, moved uh, uh, very fast 
passed and in a sense uh, not uh, uh, following the uh, regular legislative process, also not uh, getting much uh, engagement or, or input from the U.S. Uh, administration. That was a, so to say, a political uh, agreement which was uh, uh, made and uh, fast-tracked uh, fast through the uh, legislature. But at the same time, uh, the concerns, substantial concerns, uh, were very well known to our U.S. Uh, counterparts. That's one area where the U.S. and the EU are at conflict, but one area where they could actually work together uh, is potentially some tariffs on steel and aluminum as part of the way to fight carbon emissions, really punishing polluters, and China would be a big part of that. Is that going to be formal? Can you talk me through any discussions that are actually happening? Uh, well, uh, there, I would say there are uh, several uh, uh, levels of uh, discussions. One concerns global steel and aluminum uh, arrangement, where indeed, among other things, we are looking at how to improve the sustainability of uh, steel and aluminum uh, production and how also to tackle uh, global overcapacity, no, no, notably on uh, steel. Uh, but those discussions are still ongoing, so at this stage uh, we are uh, not in a position to uh, comment exact uh, content, scope, format of uh, how this uh, global steel and aluminum arrangement would eventually uh, materialize. And another work stream which we just launched in a uh, Trade and Technology Council this Monday is Transatlantic Initiative on Sustainable Trade. We will also be dealing with a uh, uh, number of those uh, sustainability issues. So I'd say there are even several tracks on uh, uh, dialogue uh, because something which is acknowledged uh, across uh, uh, both sides of the Atlantic that uh, we are uh, better off if we jointly uh, tackle the challenges of uh, climate change and greening of our economies. That was Valdis Dombrovskis, uh, European Commissioner for Trade, speaking with us earlier. We also went on and talked to him about the headlines guy that came out of Russia, uh, Vladimir Putin, saying that the risk of a nuclear uh, war in the world uh, is much higher than ever before. Some are even saying that's why we're seeing sort of a heavy trading in the stock market. But he was saying that aid is going to be released to Ukraine. They still plan on doing that in January. That was really up for grabs because Hungary was against it. Um, so we'll see how that actually develops, if they can yep. get that money to Ukraine by uh, next month. Just back to the to the, uh, to the Putin comments, we did see mm -hmm. a little bit of a blip in euro dollar. But actually, I thought it was, it was moved past fairly quickly, certainly in the FX markets, which have been quite sensitive, yeah. certainly in the past, to these kinds of moves. You do wonder whether almost... What Vladimir Putin said was almost a statement to the obvious. He's just he's just kind of keep keeping it kind of on the table. But he's made some pretty big threats before. Um, and I think certainly the, the narrative coming out of Beijing has been this is not an acceptable way to go. Yeah. And, and I also want to point out, too, that I feel like if that was true and we were taking it really seriously, I feel like markets would have moved a lot more. I feel yeah. like attributing market action to a headline like that is exactly what happens when you have these kind of days where there is no big catalyst, when you're kind of treading water till next week and you're near the yep. end of the year. So I think it's one of those, you have to write a headline if you're a markets reporter. And sometimes this is just what happens. Absolutely. Sort of after the fact, um, narrative writing. Um, yeah, because next week's huge. So in some ways, we are we kind of you get through next week, which is kind of ECB, Huge. CPI, mm -hmm. um, Fed. Well, CPI then Fed. I think are the kind of the two main ones. Then I think everybody's definitely going to take their foot off the gas. But kind of we're we're in the kind of limbo land, waiting. Mm -hmm. Limbo land. I like it. Yeah. I'm gonna use that tomorrow. Watch I really it. hope you do. <laughs> How many calories? Guys, also, guys, calories. right? Prosecco yeah. and champagne have the same amount of calories. This is Bloomberg.
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London, Alex Steele over in New York. Let's talk about what is happening in the UK housing market because the rate of change on the downside I think is now starting to accelerate. So a little earlier on today, uh, we got the mortgage data. Um, sorry, we got the housing data from the mortgage provider Halifax. Um, and what this showed us was that we had a 2.3% decline. This is October to November data. This is the, um, the fastest pace decline since the financial crisis, since 2008. And what you're really getting here, I think, is a, a correction that appears to be happening, or starting at least, really quite quickly. Um, what we are clearly getting is an effect from the mini-budget when mortgage rates kind of skyrocketed very quickly. They've, they've kind of come down a little bit, but not come down completely since then. Uh, and we're also in a tightening cycle, clearly, with the Bank of England. Uh, Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg's Philip Aldrich joins us now. Uh, he's a, a UK a fiscal eco Bank of England reporter uh, for us here at Bloomberg, the perfect person to talk to. Philip, what do you make of this data? This is this is quite a swift downdraft that we're now seeing in the UK housing market, um, judging by the data that we're getting from the Halifax and elsewhere. Yeah, there's, we had similar data from the Nationwide a few days ago, uh, suggesting as this does that the housing market is uh, beginning its contraction. Um, the uh, house prices are beginning to fall. The the um, uh, forecasts are now broadly that there's going to be there's going to be something like a five to ten percent fall in house prices over the over the next year, um, which you know will be quite quite a, sh- a sharp correction. But that's what you might expect if we're going into a period of contraction. Cost of living uh, is has risen uh, and interest rates are going up, so the marginal the marginal buyer of these houses that come onto the market isn't just not going to be able to afford as, as much debt. Um, how do you think that this winds up playing out over the next year? If we see mortgage rates come down, will there be a flood of money into the market? Or do you think that people are really going to just like sit on their hands for, for the next year? It feels like in the U.S. we can be a little bit more reactive uh, to prices and more opportunistic. Does it work that way over there? Yeah, I think uh, um, well, house prices have gone up quite considerably over the over the last 10 years particularly actually over the pandemic and people, and, and debt, household debt levels have gone up you know quite a lot and as a result the rate rises that we're going to get so rates you know they were at 0.1% 12 months ago and they're due to be 3.5% next week uh, if we get this half point rate rise which which is forecast you know they may peak, rates may peak at 4.5%. It just, just the sheer level of debt is going to be a problem for people to service, more so than before. So there's that issue. And also, you know, you, you just can't afford the same amount of debt. So, yeah. and, and it's large mortgages that are doing, uh, that, are, that are keeping, you know, the property price momentum going. And you just, and it, I just can't see how, you know, people are going to do that. There's frothy parts of the market, like the super, super rich premium end, um, People paying cash, millions and millions. So I'm not sure how much that'll be affected. But for the rest of the country, I don't think people are going to be snapping up deals because they're just not going to have the the mortgage uh, capital available. The previous two corrections, the previous two significant corrections we saw were kind of peak to trough circa 20%. If you were to see a correction along those kinds of lines, and that would only actually take us back to kind of where we were pre-pandemic, what kind of economic impact would that have? 
Well, there, there is, there's been lots of work done showing there's a link between house price valuations and, uh, and confidence in, in, this, uh, in the economy and consumer spending as a result. And then, you know, if people are less confident because they feel like they've got to tuck more money away because their house prices are no longer going up, um, uh, then that that hits uh, that does have a depressing impact on the economy. I, I'm not sure how much of that will happen in in the current environment. I mean, we've we've got a cost of living crisis which is already applying a squeeze. It'll be it'll be an additional additional bit for 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 a while. I I I, I you know I I suspect uh, and also there is actually some fundamental changes in in the housing market in the UK. So we have. More renters and more uh, outright owners than we do have mortgage borrowers. So only 30% of the of the of the of the housing stock is owned by people on mortgages. Obviously, the, those on rent are going to get a second round effect. The, the landlords are going to probably be putting up their rents because they're having to pay these higher mortgage bills. But um, yeah, so there is this, there will be this 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 squeezing effect. But um, you know the direct it, it, the direct sort of impetus through. The mortgage market onto mortgage borrowers, I think it's more muted yeah. than, it, than it was a year ago. That's actually really interesting. I also heard, read somewhere that not a lot of individuals or households have to refi their, their mortgage this year, that like it's pushed out a bit. Is that, is that true? So, yeah, we fixed. I, there's some, I know America has very long fixes, uh, but we have uh, 80% of all the mortgages were fixed for for two years or more, basically. So, and I think about about forty-five to fifty percent were fixed for five years. So there is some degree of protection against these mortgage, uh, the, these higher mortgage rates, but they are rolling off very quickly. So, you know, people who are on five-year mortgages may have may have taken that five-year mortgage out yeah. four years ago. So they're about to refinance, and and I, and we are having we're kind of hitting a, 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 a quite a quite a full-on steam of uh, people coming off these, rolling off these mortgages, about 300,000 people um, every quarter currently. So um, uh, that, that, is, that means that there are people who are genuinely facing these, these higher bills. But I mean, in terms of the actual mortgage rate, they did shoot up above 6% after the, after the mini-budget yeah. caused the sort of mayhem in bond markets. But you know, bizarrely, despite the fact that the Bank of England is raising rates, the, 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 the mortgage borrowing costs are actually coming down with, uh, for the first time in several weeks. We've just seen the two-year fixed rate fall below 6% to just, just under 6%. Um, so in a, in, a, in a way, it's not that there's going to be this additional squeeze because a lot of, a lot of, the, lot of the mortgage hit has actually been taken. And, and now, now markets are repricing to a low, lower, longer-term longer interest rate level. Um, it, it doesn't, it's not like it's going to get worse from here. That, see, it mm-hmm. even seems to be slightly improving, bizarrely. Right. No, fair enough. Like, okay, we've already seen the worst. Now we just got to live through it. Um, Philip, awesome stuff. Really appreciate it, Philip Aldrich, joining us on the UK economy. All right, coming up, we got something coming up. What is it? It is D.C. That's right. Okay, so we had a Georgia runoff in the U.S. yesterday. Raphael Warnock won. That means that the Democrats are decidedly in charge of the Senate. We're going to take a look at what the read-through is for 2024 and what it means for policy in D.C. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 
Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. We mentioned it before, but stocks just can't seem to find a lot of footing here. Um, the Dow's now flat. The S&P's off two-tenths of one percent, but really, honestly, nothing to write home about. NASDAQ 100, though, of course, getting hit hardest. I feel like that's the theme of the last five days. Um, the dollar weaker, the yen getting the biggest bid in the G10 space. That feels like a risk-off kind of move. You are seeing buying in the bond market all across the board. Uh, the 30-year below a 3.5%. Uh, at one point. But again, it feels like we're kind of in a wait and see moment when it comes to next week. Although something that I keep hearing about now, I think Lizanne Saunders talked about this, is the idea of a rolling recession, that different pockets of the economy will go into recession at different times. How do you price for that? I don't know. Um, anyway, that's a snapshot here in the U.S. Here's Charlie Pellet with some other headlines. I thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Prime Minister Sunak says he will pass tough laws to protect the British public from the disruption caused by so-called unreasonable trade union leaders as emergency service workers prepare for a series of strikes in the run-up to Christmas. As many as 100,000 nursing staff are planning industrial action on December 15th and 20th, affecting about a quarter of England's hospitals and community services, while ambulance staff, paramedics, and call handlers have also voted to strike with a walkout expected on December 21st. The Financial Conduct Authority has told lenders to act flexibly if their customers get into difficulties repaying their mortgages as the regulator looks to soften the impact of rising interest rates and a sputtering economy. The FCA's draft guidance includes options such as extending the term of a mortgage, switching temporarily to interest only, moving to a different interest rate, or making reduced monthly payments for a temporary period. European Central Bank Executive Board member Fabio Panetta says crypto assets that promised radical change in how people pay, save, and invest have turned into the bubble of a generation, highlighting the need for stricter regulation and risk management. He argues there is an urgent need for regulation to protect consumers from the risks of crypto assets globally. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie, thank you so very much. Uh, here in the United States, one of the biggest events uh, happened yesterday. That was the Georgia runoff election. It decided which party was going to have decisive control uh, of the Senate. Raphael Warnock defeated Republican uh, candidate Herschel Walker um, in a very hotly contested debate. It unleashes 51 seats for the Democrats in the Senate versus 49 for the Republicans. This has lessons for a lot of different things, particularly in the run-up to 2024. For more on this, we're joined by Jody Schneider, political news director of Bloomberg Television and Radio. Jody, it's such a pleasure, honored to have you. Um, what was your biggest takeaway from the Georgia runoff? Well, thanks, and and thanks for having me here. Uh, so I a couple takeaways. One, this matters in the U.S. Senate. A lot of people were saying, well, we already knew that the uh, Democrats were going to have control. What does another seat matter? And it matters for a number of reasons. One, which I didn't even think about much until today, and we wrote a story on it on the terminal, is that uh, this allows uh, the Democrats to use their expanded majority to subpoena corporations mm -hmm. and executives. Uh, in the past uh, Senate, it, you know, in the past Congress, it was 50-50. Committees were split evenly between Republicans and Democrats. So Democrats really, while they were chairman of their committees, they didn't have the same kind of control and majority that they're going to have in this next Congress. So there's that. And also, it gives them that really necessary cushion. Joe Manchin, who is a Democrat but often didn't vote with them, uh, really allowed, uh, you know, he was given a fair bit of power that, that stymied the Democrats in some of what they wanted to do with one 
more member that will help give them that cushion and they won't have to go to the vice president as much to break ties. Jenny, why did the Democrats win in Georgia? Yeah, well, there's a couple of reasons. One was Herschel Walker's Republican candidate. Very early on, people were saying he was somebody who you know didn't seem that touched in, within the issues. Uh, he was a you know former you know football player, very good football player, very winning football player, but um, it didn't seem that he was going to be able to um, you know carry the day in terms of what we tend to think of as candidates for these kinds of positions in terms of policy matters. He didn't have strong roots in Georgia, so it wasn't even like uh, you know he was somebody who who they were going to think of in terms of local matters. So it was like what became the kind of catchphrase candidate quality issue. Mm. Uh, and he was backed by Donald Trump, which, you know, turned out to work somewhat, but also proved problematic as well. So there was that. And uh, the Democrats got out the vote in the end. Uh, they they were very successful at that. Early voting was very, very strong, mm-hmm. both in the general election and yesterday for the runoff. Aside from the quality of candidate. What does the Republican Party take away from yesterday? I was talking to David Weston about this earlier. Like, Herschel Walker didn't get zero votes. Like, he still got nearly 1.8 million, right? I mean, like, there were still millions of people that voted for him. Yeah, that's a really good question, Alex. And I, I think that's a question the Democrats are asking themselves this morning. Why was it so close? Uh, given that Raphael Warnock was a sitting senator, granted he was only he served just two years of a term, but he was a sitting senator, uh, and Herschel Walker didn't have any political experience. They had these issues, you know, he had issues that came up in the campaign, allegations um, it, involving abortions of former girlfriends, and uh, when he's you know anti-abortion candidate, and other kinds of things. Uh, so why was it so close in the end? And that's got to be a question for the Democratic Party. There, it's a lot of talk now. Maybe, uh, you know, Georgia will be a battleground state going forward, but I'm not so sure. I think the party still has a lot of work to do in Georgia. If they had had uh, a stronger candidate, uh, they might not be having yep. holding on to that seat. If Donald Trump doesn't run, if Donald Trump steps back from the Republican Party, do the Democrats have a bigger problem with that? Well, it's a really good question, and that's another question, Guy, that everybody is going to be debating now. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Donald Trump seems to be a tarnished brand lately. He did not win his hand-picked candidates, and Herschel Walker was among them, not just somebody he supported, somebody he hand-picked that mm-hmm. he ran in the primary. Um, they have not done well uh, in this cycle. The, in the general election, very few of them won, and we saw, of course, Walker lose last night. And uh, he has had all kinds of legal problems. Uh, and there's, you know, all kinds of potential legal problems to come. So he's a tarnished brand. But if he doesn't run or he or he has a, you know, an early failed campaign, is that even tougher for the Democrats? Yeah. And then, of course, is Joe Biden going to win, going to run? And what would be his chances of winning given some of the, uh, you know, his low approval ratings of late? Right. It's like weirdly that the worst thing that could happen for the Democratic Party would be for Trump to pull out. It could be it could be difficult for them. Yes. Um, and it, it has been it has allowed the Democrats to coalesce around, mm-hmm. uh, you know, against Trump. If they don't have that, if it's more diffuse, right. um, does does that hurt them? And does it hurt them in terms of fundraising? Jody, as we wrap this conversation up, we have two years. Well, I guess a year and a half at this point until 2024 uh, election. What's the next pivotal point we need to be watching for in D.C.? 
Yeah, well, one of the things is whether they are able to change the calendar. Uh, you know, President Biden has made it clear, and some members of the Democratic Party have made it clear, they don't want to Trump down to, you know, they don't want to travel down to Iowa and make that the first. They want to go to South Carolina first. There's a lot of pushback on that in the party. But, uh, you know, how, how those races are going to happen is very important. So that's the thing to watch for. And then the next thing to watch for, of course, is does President Biden run right. again? And if he doesn't, Wow, that opens that up a whole uh, interesting scenario. Is it Kamala Harris? Mm-hmm. Is it others? Um, but the, the the money in Washington is that he is going to announce, and he's going to announce probably soon. So we'll see. Yeah, you have to imagine what the dinner table combos are about that um, with the Biden family. Um, Jody, thank you very much. I know you have to run back to the control room. Thank you, Jody Schneider, joining us. Uh, Bloomberg Television, TV, Radio, and Director for uh, Political News. Uh, all right, I'm out of here. I'm going to TV. I'm going to anchor the 1 o'clock. Good guy. I'll take you through the rest of the show. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele, as we just heard, has gone. She's going back to television. She's got better things to do than hang around with the likes of us. However, I have found a worthy replacement. Cameron Kreis joins us now on the line. Uh, Macro strategist uh, joining us out uh, of the US. Cameron is a little worried. He's worried that Santa Claus has gone AWOL, missing it in action. Stocks have been rolling over over the last few days. Things are not as they should be. Santa should be in charge. The Santa rally, maybe not quite yet, but should be in full swing out of this year, maybe into next. Cam, great to have you on the show. Nice to talk to you as ever. What do you make of the recent price action? Well, I think, you know, ultimately it kind of just unwinds the the uh, price action from last week where we got that kind of absurd rally uh, after Jerome Powell said more or less nothing new uh, and people decided that they had to buy financial assets with both hands. Um, so to some extent, this is just sort of reality kind of returning to the fold. You know, I guess with the help of some, some positive data, you know, the payroll number and then the services ISM earlier this uh, this week. And it, I guess it's sort of normal services perhaps being resumed to some extent. We, we've also probably, to a certain extent, front-run some of the good China news. Is that a factor oh, totally. here as well? I mean, totally. Uh, I mean, you know, Ch- Chinese equities put in their best return since the late 90s last month. Uh, I mean, that's... That's you look up by the rumor in yep. uh, in the dictionary, uh, you know, twenty some odd percent return uh, on, on reopening hopes, pretty much fits the fits the definition to a bill. And what do you do after you buy the rumor? Well, you sell the fact. So and is that is that the narrative between now now and Christmas? I has have we already seen Santa? Did he arrive early? Uh, yeah, I think to some extent. Uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting because historically the returns of the stock market are superb in December. I mean, this is going back into the dim yep. you know, reaches of history back to 1928, which is when price data starts for the S&P. However, um, and I know you're asking me a leading question because I wrote about this today. Um, yep. However, <laughs> when the uh, year-on-year return as of the end of November is negative, as obviously it is now, uh, the average return for the S&P in December is basically zero. 
Um, so uh, the conclusion that, that, you know, I think we distill from that is that Santa Claus is afraid of polar bears. Uh, and so when the, the price action is bearish, <laughs> he, he often doesn't show up. Okay, so so Santa's either been or hasn't shown up. Or, or, if you want to say, by the way, if you want to say Father Christmas, I'm cool with that. I lived in the UK long enough that I'm. I'm I, I, Father Christmas, I, Santa I'm, Claus. I'm, I'm, equal, I'm converse, equally conversant with <laughs> mythical, <laughs> fake, but, fake but, Christmas Christmas present givers. We don't we don't really talk about the Father Christmas rally, though, do we? We talk about no. The, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't really roll off the tongue quite as nicely. No, it, does it? it is tougher to say. So Santa Claus, kind of from a financial markets point of view. I'm firmly in the Santa Claus camp when it comes okay. to putting when it comes to your, putting, comes to your kids. Maybe, maybe precisely. Uh, Father maybe Christmas so. is the is the more dominant narrative. Though they're getting a little old for that kind of thing now. Yeah, um, yeah mine too. Let Let's talk a little. So, so let's talk about kind of where we are because I'm reading a lot of um, reports about next year, speculation um, and and complete conjecture about what what next year is ultimately going to look like. And the consensus at its core seems to be that we get a dip. And then we get a rip. I'm sure you're reading these as well. What is your sense of how kind of how set up we are coming out of 22 into 23? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, the, that narrative makes all the sense in the world, which is why I think you have to be a little skeptical of it, because when something seems that obvious and and the view is that widely held, you naturally have to have to worry that you're, you know, you're missing something. Um, I, I think... The risk is that, uh, or the, the, there's a, you, you miss it one way or the other, right? Either you get no landing whatsoever or a soft landing and we, the bottom is already in and you never get the dip, uh, or yep. that the dip is longer and more painful than is commonly uh, ex- and what will, expected. And what will de- and what will determine that? Will it be this kind of this whole idea that the Fed raises rates, so let's call it circa 5%, and then leaves them there, as opposed to the current kind of market pricing, which is the Fed gets rates to circa 5%, and then actually probably towards the back end of this year, no, sorry, next year, is in a position to start cutting. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Or uh, there is a third option, which is the Fed raises rates to whatever, 5%, 5.25%. Uh, the economy takes a little bit longer to... Um, uh, to roll over, so you know people maybe get a little excited or whatever. Uh, I mean, they they're hopeful, I should say. Uh, and then the the downturn is so significant that it kind of doesn't matter what the Fed's doing because yeah. people, uh, you know, the profit outlook becomes pretty disastrous. And I think that's actually a reasonable theory on how the consensus might miss. Um, you know, if you think of the labor market, yeah, there have been some high-profile job losses in technology companies, but more broadly, you know, this narrative is, is that there's still this, this shortfall of available labor. And so what sort of behavior does that encourage? It encourages yeah. firms, particularly small businesses, to hang on to the labor that they've got probably longer than they ordinarily would have when the prognosis becomes a little ropey. Because the last thing you want to do is, if you're only kind of worried about the state of the economy, is to get rid of workers and then find you can't hire them back. But, but in theory, that, what that's going to... But that's going to... So that in... Uh, when people have jobs, they are more relaxed about their spending patterns. As long as they think they're going to keep their jobs, they are going reta- they are, they are to retain their ability to spend. And, and, and I'm one, this, is, this is the really tricky thing that I can't figure out right now. 
if if companies do hang on to labour, margins are going to get squeezed. Now that's bad for equities, but in theory, it does mean that maybe we do get this shallower recession than maybe we would have done otherwise. That, that's certainly possible. However, I, I would I would I would again return to this idea that the longer that companies hang on to labour that isn't actually essentially being productive or having an, uh, a positive impact, the more significant the culling of the labor force will eventually be Maybe. if and when the penny drops. You know, it's like any other sort of misallocation of resource. Uh, the longer that it persists, but the more painful the correction. I hear what you're saying, but in uh, and I think that probably does work in manufacturing, but in, in the services sector, presumably it doesn't because if people are still spending money, the, the need for services... I, let's call them restaurant bars, whatever it is going to be, is going to remain elevated because the consumer is still going to spending. Now, the consumer's already spent a lot of stuff on goods, but, but less so in services. And if they've still got jobs, aren't they going to continue to spend money in those services? To, and therefore, the cycle is positive. To a degree, although I, I would suggest that, you know, if, this, if all of this sort of rebounds back into corporate profits and the stock market has another, I mean, it's, it's, it's all quite circular, and I'll concede this. Um, uh, but, if, you know, if you see the stock market drop uh, further in, in sort of impulsive fashion, then that people sort of essentially take their signals on the fate of the economy from that. Uh, and particularly now in this sort of social media age where, you know, these memes or themes get spread around, you know, kind of it's all com- the economy is ultimately just a confidence game. If enough people Absolutely. believe that there's yeah. going to be a recession, then it kind of it becomes a foregone conclusion because they will pull back spending. Um, and if they do, then all of a sudden there isn't that much spending on your local restaurant. And, yep, uh, yep, yep. you know, those, those three dishwashers, well, maybe we only need one now. I'm still kind of got an issue with three dishwashers, two maybe, one, definitely. Well, I, I mean, it's a big restaurant. Um, uh, oh, sorry, I thought we were talking about home. But, yeah, no, I hear what you're saying about a restaurant. Um, I was like, wow. Um the other factor that, that I'm just kind of throwing into this is what we appear to be seeing, we're certainly seeing it here in the UK at the moment, and, and we're seeing it in the States as well. Mortgage rates are not going up. They're now going down again. Uh, yes, although they're still, I mean, in, in the US in particular, they're still way elevated relative sure. to uh, to history, right? Um, but, but again, so- if, it's, if it's about confidence, consumers are going to look and say, well, Mortgage rates aren't going to continue to climb because now we're looking like we're stabilizing, so we can get a handle on that. Yeah, but uh, you know, for for the time being, at least, house prices haven't corrected lower. So you still have elevated house prices, and okay, a mortgage rate that's not on um, the ding dong high, but is still way high. higher than it was yep. a year or two ago. Housing is still pretty unaffordable um, for for a lot of people, pushing people into the rental market, which might keep rents more elevated than would otherwise have been the case. Yep, yep, yep. You know, and in the, U- in the U.K., obviously, it's a somewhat different situation because the stock of, there's a lot more floating rate exposure to the stock of mortgages. Um, and, yeah, it is good news that mortgage rates are not where they were at the peak uh, you know, a month or two ago, but they're still quite a bit higher than they were a year ago. Uh, or two years ago, uh, or more importantly, when the stock, you know, when these, all these mortgages are yep. resetting over the next year, there's still going to be an upward adjustment, right? 
Absolutely. And I think it's what, 300, we talked about this earlier, 300,000 people, I think, um, on mortgages per quarter are coming off their fixed here in the UK. So it's, it's yeah. a fairly, you'll certainly see that, that kind of ripping through. Talking of mortgage, talking of rates, I was talking about this to, to somebody earlier as well. Has 22 been about a, an adjustment to the price of money? And 2023, we should think about being an adjustment to the quantity of money because QE has kicked off. The Fed's doing it. The Bank of England's doing it. Potentially, we're going to hear from the ECB about when it's going to be doing it. Is that the different narrative? We've, we are kind of adjusting. Our mortgage rates have already moved quite aggressively, certainly on both sides of the Atlantic. Have we adjusted to the, to the higher rates of mortgage, uh, to, to, of rates? But now we need to really worry about the quantity of that money. Uh, to some extent. Uh, I mean, money supply growth in the U.S. has already fallen this year. Um, so, But is it going to fall much more next year? We've only just sort of started the QT process. Yeah, although the, the relationship between the balance sheet and the actual money supply isn't sort of – yeah. it's not really in lockstep, right? Um, uh, there is an aspect of it, uh, you know, via sort of base money, but – um, you know, broader monetary measures, M2, M3, include a lot of sort of retail deposits and, and, and whatever that aren't necessarily directly impacted by, um, by QE. Those, you know, in the U.S. in particular, those have been much more a function of fiscal policy rather than, uh, rather than, uh, rather than monetary policy. But, yeah, I mean, there's certainly an argument that at some point next year the QT program will begin to bite uh, if and as bank reserves hit sort of their lowest comfortable level, and that's when you'll see, um, uh, mar- you know, money market rates, uh, repo rates, and the like st- start to start to push higher. I mean, the Fed does have a backstop there in terms of its own repo yeah. facility if things get a little out of hand. Um, but uh, I'm a, um, for now, I'm less worried about that as an H1 story than I would have been, say, a few months ago, because bank reserves have held up more than I thought they would. Um, and that's partially a function of the Fed, the fact that the Fed can't, can't get rid of any mortgage-backed securities because no one's prepaying their mortgage, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, but also, you have seen a little bit of a drawdown in the uh, uh, reverse repo facility usage by money funds, which presumably is because there's a few more T-bills uh, for them to buy, and they're replacing those reverse repo balances with treasury bills. So if Karen Kreis did have to write a year ahead, what would it say? Oh, I haven't got a Scooby, mate. Uh, Honestly, I, I think I, they should I, all say that. Well, yeah. I mean, I, 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 mean I, I will have to write one on the treasury market. Uh, I wrote it last year, and, uh, I mean, it's kind of, you know, I should send it into Comedy Central uh, or... Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, one, no, one I, those, one of those UK panel shows because it was so laughably wrong. Um, you know, but, I mean, it's but, the cost of cost of doing business. So, so, but next year looks particular. I guess the reason I'm kind of saying this, it sort of slightly tongue in cheek as well, is that next year we are in a we we've not got one crisis running at the moment. We've got multiple crises running at the moment. We've got an inflation crisis. They're all linked, but we've basically got a poly crisis running. We've got a war in in. In Europe, we've got a trade war with China that looks like it's going to grow and accelerate. We've got um, a, a Saudi Arabia that's that's much more difficult uh, to understand in terms of its policy towards energy uh, going forward. There seems to be a whole, a whole sort of series of imponderables. Somebody put it quite well to me a little bit earlier on when it came to Europe as well. Um, you you basically got a economic forecast times a weather forecast. 
equals what? Yeah. And, and and that's yeah. kind of you've got no idea. Well, and more importantly, you've got no edge. Yeah. Right. I mean, unless you're unless you're the Nostradamus of uh, of the of the weather system. Um, so, how easy is it going to be to make money next year? I would say, from for a macro-oriented investor, probably not as easy as it was this year. Um, now, obviously, there's been some give back on the popular themes, sort of short stock, short bonds, long dollar, uh, laterally. But um, I, I think, by and large, a lot of the funds that have that have done reasonably well this year have held on to a fair chunk of those gains. Obviously, there are some that have not. Um, so, so that's a bit disparate. Uh, but I think there's going to be a lot more uncertainty. Yep. Um, forward guidance from the central bank is going to be a lot less useful because we will be presumably hitting the, the terminal point of the cycle at some point, which means that the timing of all sort of rate decisions, yep. the magnitude of rate decisions, will be a function of the data. Uh, and on a high-frequency basis, the data is no more predictable than the weather six weeks down the line. You've got 10 seconds. Who's going to win the World Cup? Brazil, boring, but, what, you know. Looks like it, doesn't it? They were pretty yeah, sharp pretty the good. other night. Cam, great stuff. Thanks very much.